I mean, you saw him at Fox. I mean, I thought he was really good in studio at Fox. Yeah. And, you know, look, he, he, when, he, when he left Florida, you know, I think at the time he thought that was it. And then, you know, he obviously it wasn't. And, and, and towards the end of the year, you know, he was looking at, at Ohio State. And obviously it came through uh, at the end of the season. He, he did, we did Michigan-Ohio State the last game of the year, and, and Urban didn't call that game. Um, you know, for a lot of reasons, but, uh, you know, obviously with, with all the news surrounding him, you know, he felt that it was going to be a distraction to be calling a game that, you know, a, a game he could be coaching the team a week later. Um, and, and, you know, he just, um, he, I think when he, you know, a lot of guys get into the business and, and they're just doing it to pass the time until they get back in to coaching. He wasn't like that. I mean, it was, I think when he went to Fox, it was the same thing. It was all about how can I be the best at this? Yeah, if I go back to coach, I'll go back to coach at some point. But that's like he's not thinking every day about, okay, well, I got this other thing I got to do until the coaching comes along. No, I mean, he's all in as a teammate. He's all in as uh, just somebody who, who wants the best for everybody. What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Well, last Thursday, I joined a club that has eluded me as a Bears fan for like, I don't know, um, forever, I think. Yeah, forever. We'll say forever. It's the My Team Has a Quarterback Club. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you to Justin Fields for that. I feel great being a member of this club. I I was talking to my brother about this and we're like, was that the best sports moment we've had since the Cubs won it all in 2016? And if so, how sad is that in itself? Because, I, I mean, it might, it might be. In a little context here, we're, we're obviously, like, my brother and I, we're, we're both field believers. We were both kind of preparing ourselves for the worst-case scenario for the Bears in this draft, which, in my opinion, would have been, like, the Bears reaching to try and catch lightning in a bottle with Davis Mills, Kellen Mond, both of whom I'm just not really sold on as franchise quarterbacks. I've already kind of done the rants about why I thought the market for them was elevated because of all the teams that are in flux at the position, whatever. Maybe I I thought the Bears would do something like they would take a day three flyer on Jamie Newman, which would have been a tough pill to swallow. And it turns out uh, nobody had to swallow that pill, which is crazy considering how we were talking about Jamie Newman at this time last year. A lot of thoughts on that on SaturdayDownSouth.com, by the way, shameless plug. But Will, explain this to me because you have experienced this as a Saints fan, but you also have really good perspective on this as an LSU fan with experience in the pre-Joe Burrow years. When you feel like your team has a quarterback, tell me because I'm, I'm a new member of the club, does that mean that the game isn't over the second that like your team falls behind by 14 points? <laughs> well, first off, this is Jay Cutler erasure. Jay Cutler was a good player for the Bears. Yeah, but... <laughs> but it's different when it's drafting, too. And that's what I never... Like, even with Mitch, when they draft Trubisky and they trade up to get him from the jump, it's not so much they ha- we have our guy now. It's oh crap, this better work, and if it doesn't, this is going to look really bad. And then it ends up looking way worse than anyone could have ever imagined because of the way that Mahomes and Watson turn out, and that's just going to be a punchline forever, and hopefully it's the last bad moment of the Bears doing dumb quarterback things, but it's the Bears, and we thought it was the last moment for forever. But anyways, 
when you are in that spot and your team has a quarterback, I have forgotten what that felt like to be like, wait a minute, you can actually go out and win games you're not supposed to. You have a face of your franchise. You aren't kind of sort of bummed when your defense leaves the field and you realize that that was probably your best chance to score via pick six, little Khalil Max strip sack, something like that. But this feeling, I got to say, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, the thing about Fields, too, like you said, is he's exciting. I mean, even like Trubisky, if he would have worked out, wouldn't have been this dynamic guy that Fields was when you watched him, you know, number one recruit, or I guess number two behind um, Lawrence. And he just has so much hype. And like you said, you watched him at Ohio State. I mean, if I was a Bears fan, I'd be thrilled right now because what they gave up to get him is so minuscule compared to what the Niners gave up to get Trey Lance. Yeah, that's a good point, too. And it doesn't feel like, even if we look back on this one, this one, this this draft will have a very different vibe as well because Fields is the fourth quarterback taken off the board. Even if Max sort of explodes with the Patriots, which maybe he could. Maybe, I mean, I, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. I'm banging, I've been banging the drum for Mac for a while now. It's not going to look quite as bad as like going up to two and mortgaging the franchise the way that the Bears did to get Mitch. Whereas like you just gave up an additional first, you gave up a fourth to be able to swap picks with the Giants and do that. So. Um, I, I don't feel like this this pick, even if Fields doesn't turn out, it's not going to be looked at in the same way that the Mitch thing was. So, in other words, I'm just I'm excited to be a football fan, a professional football fan. I was a little bit on the fence for a lot of moments there. I can only take so much of watching Mitch Trubisky throw three, four yards behind the sticks on third and and nine. I just can't I can't fathom that, and I'm glad I don't have to experience that anymore because Justin Fields is a different kind of competitor. But anyways. I don't just want to talk about Justin Fields today. I've got something that's been taking up too much space in my brain for like the last month or so. And I wanted to use it to hit on a bunch of things that are going on right now in college football. We've also got ESPN's Dave Pash coming on a little bit later. He called the Texas A&M spring game. You've heard him call college football games a ton on your televisions for a very, very long time. Some Bill Walton stuff as well that we got into. But before we get to all of that, oh, and we also got figuring out talking birthdays and figuring out at the very end. But before we get to all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by College Football Uncensored. Yes, you've heard me talk about it before. It is Saturday Down South's newest podcast. It's Marler, it's Tyler Huck. They talk about everything, college football, and then some, whether you want all of those takes that you need in the off season to get you through these lean months, or you just want to talk about these random, you know, events that come up where you know we're we're picking apart quotes or whatever it is. Those guys are all over it. They are so good at being able to just kind of shoot the breeze back and forth. Go to wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to College Football Uncensored. It's only one episode a week during the off season. It's dropping every Monday morning. You know that in these lean months, if there's something that's going to happen, it's probably going to be something that's happening over the weekend. And hey, if you hate the bleep button, you're in luck. There is no bleep button needed. Actual curse words. They've got a lot of fun stuff planned this off season. So if you haven't, again, go to wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to College Football Uncensored. Go do that right now. Will, have you ever read or seen Moneyball? Love Moneyball. Love, that's like weirdly, that's my second favorite Jonah Hill character ever behind Superbad. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so Moneyball is one of those rare sports stories where I think both the book and movie are exceptional. And I don't always think that's the case. Like 
Friday Night Lights, wasn't really there for that. I would go TV show, movie, then book. Sorry, Bus Bissinger, wasn't really totally sold on the book. I know that's probably a controversial take, whatever. For those of you who haven't read the book by Michael Lewis or seen the movie with Brad Pitt, here's a brief rundown. The Oakland Athletics, good MLB franchise, but in baseball, we're big market teams. They have payrolls that are five times as big as the smaller market teams. They get crushed by free agency in the offseason. So their general manager, Billy Bean, which is played by Brad Pitt, is like, hey, I've got to figure out a new path to success because I know that when Jason Giambi, Johnny Damon, Jason Isringhausen, when they leave for bigger contracts elsewhere, I'm going to have to find a way to replace that production. So the scene in the movie that's pivotal is Billy, again, played by Brad Pitt. He decides that offseason to hire this 20-something Ivy League graduate who's played by Jonah Hill. He's a Bill James disciple who believes in sabermetrics, analytics, all those things. Billy basically craps on his entire scouting department during their offseason meeting, and it comes to blows when the head scout confronts Billy and is like, hey, you can't be serious with this analytic stuff because you're discounting the way that we've done this for 150 years. The scout finishes this rant, and Billy looks at him, and he raises his arms out, and he says, adapt or die. The scout tells Billy more or less like, F you. Uh, he quits, and then the rest is history. The A's, they set the American League record, winning 20 games in a row, and soon... Everyone in Major League Baseball adapts some form of analytics into their scouting. I bring that up because the words adapt or die are everywhere in college football right now. Let's start with the draft this past week. There are a ton of individual cases where you could find adapt or die. Look, look at someone like Kadarius Toney. He's a guy who came to Florida as a quarterback trying to learn how to be a receiver. That in itself was him trying to adapt. He was super raw. Some questioned his work ethic. And then he'd flash that potential and it's like, hey, get him more touches. Get him more touches. Florida fans were banging that drum for basically every week throughout his first three years of college when he was healthy. But that's not always such an easy thing because those plays can go for negative yards. I actually ran the numbers on this before 2020, and I'm like, let's just accept that he is what he is. He's a super intriguing, home run play, freak athlete type of guy, but he's never going to be a high volume guy. He's probably going to end up being like a day three flyer. The guy had 606 career receiving yards before 2020. Tony adapted. What I didn't realize at the time when I was you know, coming out with this take like last August was that he put in some serious work with Florida wide receivers coach Billy Gonzalez and he became a guy that Mullen could put in those spots. Kadarius Tony, now healthy, finally adapted to being a complete receiver in 2020. The route running got so, so much better and it, it complemented that all-world athleticism that he had. And that's why he ultimately became this high-volume guy. There's also a part in there that I should probably include about how Dan Mullen adapted his offense to Kyle Trask when Felipe Franks went down. It helped Mullen go from being the guy associated with the Nick Fitzgerald-type quarterbacks to producing the number one passing offense in America this past season. But getting back to Tony. Both of those moves are kind of why Tony became a first round pick. In order to be in a spot to adapt or die, one has to have life. Or in this case, one has to have tasted a little bit of success. In Moneyball, the A's were coming off of a playoff berth when they decided to make the move to adapt to this analytics-based approach. They weren't some failed franchise who lost 100 games. And that's why we use the word adapt and not like, hey, we need to blow the whole thing up. Adapting in sports is different than being down to your last option and essentially being like, well, we're in need of a rebuild, so we have no choice but to do things differently. Adapting isn't Arkansas in the post-Chad Morris era. Adapting is what Nick Saban did by making Lane Kiffin's spread-based principle the offensive identity at Alabama. 
Imagine winning national titles in three or four years and then basically having the 2013 season and deciding a year later, we need to adapt. Saban had won a total of four national titles at that point, and even he, at the peak of his power, said, we need to adapt. We're not maximizing our talent by only throwing the ball 20 times a game. With the way that the rules are built, the way that the quarterbacks are being developed at the high school ranks, we need to adapt. And that's been well documented. Even the disagreements with Kiffin were well documented because can you imagine how hard that would be to open up your mind to the kind of change when you've had so much success doing it the other way. Saban will, in my opinion, never get enough credit for his ability to adapt. And I know that he hasn't necessarily lacked getting that credit. But even the in-game stuff, you know, pulling Jalen Hurts in favor of two in the national title game, that's adapting. Georgia's defense didn't adapt to someone who could stretch the field, and it died. Go figure that the guys who threw and caught second and 26 would be at the root of this record-setting draft run for Alabama. Tua and Mac Jones became Alabama's first ever quarterback duo to come off the board in the first round in consecutive years. Perhaps even more impressive than that, Alabama had four receivers drafted in the first round in a two-year stretch, which had never been done by any program in the sports history. Let me back up a second, because I think some might have just rolled their eyes at that stat, because by now, a week removed from the draft, you've seen it a million times, you knew it was coming, you were ready for it. Before 2020, there were four instances of a college program having two first-round receivers in the same draft. LSU had Dwayne Bowe and Craig Davis in 2007. That was a trivia question for Will a little, little while back. I think he won 10 bucks off that, I'm pretty sure. Um, Ohio State had Ted Ginn and Anthony Gonzalez. That was also in 2007. Congressman Anthony Gonzalez. A congressman, yeah, people forget that. He's, <laughs> he's big time now, he's real big time. Miami had uh, Santana Moss and Reggie Wayne back in 2001, and then Florida had I Killiard, Reed L. Anthony in 1997. So last year, when Henry Ruggs and Jerry, Rudy, Jerry Judy went in the first round, it was the first time in draft history that two receivers from the same school were drafted in the top 15 together. Alabama just did that again with Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith. The game has changed. And the guy who was more successful than anyone in the sport was willing to change with it instead of being stubborn and sticking to what had always worked. But not everyone is Alabama and capable of pivoting in this sort of way. There are the teams who don't get the five-star recruits like Kentucky. When I look at what Kentucky did this past week in the NFL draft, I again thought of adapt or die. In case you missed it, Kentucky set a modern draft era record for its program with six players drafted. I think that was the only one, maybe, eh, probably, yeah, the only one besides the whole like SEC is going to have the most player selected thing. In uh, my can't miss predictions that I actually got right. Spoiler alert if you haven't listened to last week's pod. But what Kentucky has built with Mark Stoops is exactly what fans could have hoped for. This is arguably the program's best three-year run since Bear Bryant was in Lexington. Marler put together that graphic to show all these draft feats for Kentucky, and you're like, wow, more draft picks than the last three years than the previous decade combined. Third first-round linebacker for Mark Stoops. Most draft picks since 1977, but that was also back when they were doing 12 rounds instead of seven like they are now. You could say that it's the best three-year draft stretch for Kentucky, whatever. There's no doubt that Kentucky is in the midst of a special, special time with a coach who knows how to develop talent with that staff. But think about this. Imagine having that kind of success and having all these people tell you how great you are in, you know, in relation to the, the history of the program and then being like, you know what we need to do? We need to overhaul our offense completely. Stoops adapted. 
He didn't let that taste of success lead him down a path of stubbornness because he recognized that, yeah, like it, it's great that we've had guys like Benny Snell and Josh Allen and Lynn Bowden, but we can't assume that we're always going to turn some three-star guy into a generational talent. That's what they'd like to do, but Stoops would also like to run an offense that fits today's game and recruits to it. You heard Wondell Robinson say on this very podcast, that new offense with Liam Cohen, it was a huge factor in him leaving Nebraska and going to Kentucky. Kentucky and Alabama are in different phases of their adapt or die process. But when you look at the draft, you also see a team like Michigan State. Or rather, you don't see a team like Michigan State. For the first time in 80 years, the Spartans didn't have a single player drafted. That is a stunning reality for a Power 5 program who made the playoff in 2015. I know they didn't score a point, but technically they still made the playoff. And they didn't get slapped with any sort of major recruiting sanctions or anything like that. So why did that happen? Michigan State didn't adapt and it died. Colton Pouncey of The Athletic wrote this incredible column about how the Spartans draft streak ending was a byproduct of the program's 2016 recruiting class. If you didn't know about Michigan State's 2016 recruiting class, here's the brief rundown. It was the highest rated class in program history. They called it the dream team. D'Antonio basically went from recruiting like Wisconsin to recruiting like uh, you know the power that Michigan State had become, which again, from 2013 to 2015, that's what they were. But the problem was that D'Antonio took the elite recruits who had character issues and he stayed committed to them because of their talent. I want to read an excerpt from this column that Colton Pouncey wrote for The Athletic because it's one that I think all college football fans truly need to understand as it relates to sustaining success. Only eight of the 20 players who signed with the Spartans in 2016 ultimately finished their careers at the school. Michigan State was the envy of almost every program in 2015. It's unrecognizable now. The program's in-state perception took a hit after that failed class. Perhaps in an effort to overcorrect, D'Antonio stuck to his bread and butter, recruiting overlooked high three-star prospects from Ohio. He kept his offer numbers low and his recruiting map tight, and he wasn't afraid to turn to his backup options if he missed out on a guy he liked. It worked in the early years of his tenure. He won a lot of games and three Big Ten titles with this philosophy. The problem is, Programs like Kentucky and Cincinnati adopted it, as the usual suspects like Ohio State and Notre Dame plucked the state's top prospects. More competition meant a shrinking talent pool. His margin for error shrank. The landscape of recruiting also changed in the past decade. The incorporation of social media and creative departments, more recruiting events during a calendar year, and the inception of the transfer portal all had become game changers for the coaches who adapted with the times. D'Antonio was not one of them. Colton's column digs into how much D'Antonio's recruiting and developing just in general really fell off. And once he hit his mid-60s, he realized that he couldn't walk into a living room and tell a kid that he was going to be there for the rest of his college career. That in, a, in itself should make you appreciate Saban's success and his energy that much more. D'Antonio's recruiting philosophy is totally different than that of Mel Tucker. Mel Tucker, as many SEC fans know from his days at Georgia, he adopted some very SEC-type principles to his recruiting. More events, more offers, wider recruiting net, more active in the transfer portal. That's why they got Quiveris Crouch from Tennessee, the linebacker. D'Antonio didn't adapt in recruiting, and his career died. So, as a result, did Michigan State's draft streak. 
it's not just the draft where we're seeing adapt or die play out. If you've been following this name image likeness stuff in Florida, you saw this play out in a really weird way last week. Florida was at the forefront of changing the state's legislation so that basically college athletes could make money off endorsements and whatnot without it being an NCAA violation. Florida was, it at least appeared at the time, adapting. Plenty of other states followed in Florida's lead and it was set to put this legislation in place over the summer. That came to a head last week when they put a provision in place to delay the decision a full year. At the very last minute, they did this. And then all the coaches and you know big time players in the state like De'Ara King, Mackenzie Milton, they're like, wait, what are, you, what are you talking about? You can't do that. We were all set to profit off this. This is gonna be great. And then you see you know like Dan Mullen along with all those, you know the other FBS coaches in the state, uh, they were united. They voiced their frustrations with the delay over social media. Mullen, as you recall, was the coach who a few months ago voiced his concerns over college coaches dealing with, quote, the future of college football, which was interpreted as Mullen saying, ah, he was kind of wondering if coaches were going to want to deal with the name image like this stuff. That is super, super different than the way that Mullen came across when this delay happened. And he took to Twitter to say, the state of Florida needs to enact NIL legislation in 2021, as was originally planned. We need to do what's best for our student athletes. Why would Dan Mullen put that out there on social media, you ask? Because he's trying to adapt instead of being known by recruits as the coach who is resisting the NIL changes. Mullen was also there when Florida legislators did the whole like Michael Scott snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap thing. And they decided that they'd actually just go through with the original plan that was put in place in, and they would have this enacted in July instead of delaying it for a full year. They adapted as well. Gus Malzahn is also adapting down at UCF. Like, Big, big time, if you haven't seen this yet. Gus is all about these NIL changes. Florida fans saw that with the UCF billboard in Gainesville. Uh, the marketing team at, at UCF, they, they've really kind of jumped all over this, uh, the future of college football vision that they've got going on. They had the Twitter handles on the back of the jerseys for UCF spring game. Gus in the post-spring game, post game press conference was talking about the way to market players on social media. Picture the Auburn version of Gus Malzahn talking about that. There's no way he would ever do that, but he's trying to adapt. He wants to adapt a new strategy to thrive at UCF. Gus struggled with adapt or die at Auburn. He went back and forth with the play calling thing because there had to be part of Gus, and I've talked about this before, there had to be part of him where he's like, hey, I'm literally the guy who wrote the book on the no huddle hurry up offense. I'm in this spot with this massive buyout because of the way I built my offense. And that's the challenge with adapting. Adapting isn't abandoning your values. If you're always changing who you are, it doesn't mean you're evolving. And just because you're open to adapting doesn't mean that you'll live. Will Muschamp actually modernized his offense with Brian McClendon, but it wasn't the right move because South Carolina didn't really test teams vertically, couldn't really run the ball. Jim Harbaugh, I thought early on at Michigan, did a great job of adapting with his presence on social media. He comes in from the NFL, he's calling out coaches, and it's like, whoa, what's he doing over there? But he took too long to modernize his offense, and he also took too long to realize that Don Brown's defense was never really going to stop Ohio State. Some people probably think that the name image likeness stuff and playoff expansion is an example of adapting and dying, at least in terms of how it'll impact the sport. We'll have a much better idea on both of those things probably like four years from now, but based on this legislation with name image likeness and the story from Ross Dellinger about the Power Five commissioners in favor of playoff expansion, though that's not at least gonna happen until 2023, this is 
going to be a work in progress. The sport is going to look very, very different by 2025. A sport that's been slow to adapt is now adapting in a major way. Other specific examples of those who died instead of adapting. Will, you're going to like this. Florida State not recognizing the arms race and losing Jimbo Fisher as a, as a result. Les Miles not recognizing that you can't be an elite team without a legit passing game in the modern era. Jeremy Pruitt, Will Muschamp not recognizing how you're supposed to develop quarterbacks. There are tons of other cases of this in college football and in life in general. Doing this podcast, I've tried to adapt, and I admit that is really hard for me at times because I, like probably a lot of people who listen to this, I'm a creature of habit. I pride myself on putting my head down and going to work every day. But sometimes you've got to lift your head up and look around. Adapting is reading the room. And I'm sure when you listen to this version of the pod for the first time, maybe you were like, this is stupid. Give me back the old version of this. The old version, it worked. It was maybe, maybe it was part of your routine. But we as a company made the decision to adapt and hopefully evolve. Adapting is hard because change in general is hard, especially when we've had that taste of success. You ever notice that when an app like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, when it updates, it gets ripped for a week. All of those brands have had a ton of success, but they have to adapt because imagine what they would look like if we were still using the original versions of all those products. They'd be terrible. Yet all of us, whenever they update, we're basically like the Scout and Moneyball. We stare at it and we go, F you, man. It really is a difficult thing for us to take on in sports and in life. I always say this, moving homes is the single worst thing that we as human beings do on a normal basis. But why do we put ourselves through it? Because we want to adapt to our lifestyle. We want to adapt to our family. We do it because we as human beings want to grow. As we enter what feels like a very new era in college football, take note of these three words, adapt or die. It's a mantra that we as people who consume this sport need to be open to, no matter how hard that might be. Uh, I want to make one point off that real quick, going all the way back to Kentucky, who were on a roll there. Um, so Kentucky started off with an air raid offense uh, whenever Mark Stoops got there. And True. There, I, I think that the adapter die thing, and I totally agree with you, but I, I think that a lot of it gets misconstrued as opening it up. Kentucky went what we would consider in reverse. So they started with an air raid offense, and they ended with, I mean, their peak was with Benny Snell. And I think that that deserves an extra level of credit because it's easy to look around and say, here's what everyone's doing. I'm going to do the same thing. You know, it's like the NBA with three-pointers. But what they did is they looked around and they were like, oh, no, everyone else knows how to defend this. I'm going to do the opposite. And I think that, that that's another thing is that, like, while adaptation usually means going forward, sometimes it just means bucking the trend. That's interesting because I, I think a lot of Kentucky people would, would, would agree with you in that philosophy that they had where sometimes it's adapting to your personnel. And that's what Mark Stoops did. Even at a time when everybody's going through these changes offensively, he realized, look, we've got these future NFL offensive linemen. We've got a guy in Benny Snell who runs in between the tackles especially well, and we have the personnel to be able to do this. And Terry Wilson executing that at quarterback was made more sense for what Eddie Grand wanted to run. And Joey Gatewood, similar thing. But then you realize at a certain point, you have to be willing to adapt. And there are certain moments I think that every single coach has where you have to be able to read the room. I thought Georgia's read the room moment was what happened in the SEC championship in 2019, where they looked at LSU and said, oh my God, we don't, we don't even have a chance. 
We can't blame this on a fake punt. We can't blame this on anyone but ourselves because of what we have done with this system where LSU was, was willing to, to totally overhaul it. They adapted to the times and they did so at a rate that nobody could have ever expected. But I think it's having that moment of realization of what adapting is. And you're right. I like that you bring that up. It isn't always looking for the future way of doing something, but it's adapting to be able to maximize and adapting is what we hope will lead to evolving. All right, let's go to my interview with Dave Pash. I'm gonna apologize ahead of time. For starters, we recorded this before the draft, so it was, he's got like a couple things in there where he's like, oh, you know, if Kellen Mond goes blah, blah, blah in the draft. Dave Pash didn't like just miss out on the entire draft. He just recorded <laughs> it right before it. Uh, and also, heads up, uh, we got into a decent amount of Bill Walton stuff. Look, I, I realize Bill Walton's not exactly, you know, an SEC, SEC guy. He is He's a national well, treasure, but... though. If you live in America, Bill Walton applies to you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And if you've ever been one of those people, SEC fan or not, who has stayed up super, super late watching the Pac-12 game that you, for whatever reason, you've got Oregon to cover a seven-point spread at Colorado or something like that, and you're listening to Bill Walton, you were also listening to Dave Pash as well. So I uh, wanted to be able to talk about some of that stuff. And his Dave Pash's career sort of taken on a new life with being like the Bill Walton punching bag partner. So again, nothing to do with the SEC, but I think you'll find it entertaining. So enjoy that. Here is ESPN's Dave Pash. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a first time guest, in fact. It is ESPN play-by-play announcer Dave Pash. It feels unfair to just say that because you also do the Arizona Cardinals games as well. So by my count, you get to call NFL, NBA, college football, and college basketball games. So like, besides living the dream of pretty much every single sports journalism student in America, um, when that calendar hits November and all of those things are going on, what in the world is your schedule like? <laughs> First of all, thanks for having me on. It's a great question. It's uh, clearly the time of year where things get a little crazy. Uh, there are weeks where I'll have all four going on at once. Um, there was a week last year where when we were traveling, uh, we did uh, the Maui Invitational. Uh, had that surrounded by a couple of college football games, a Cardinal game, and an NBA game. So you can only imagine Gosh. what that was like. Doing all that and going to Maui in between. I went from Baton Rouge, we had a night game at LSU, to uh, Maui. Uh, and then you basically land and do three, uh, six games, you know, two games a day for three straight days. Um, and that was also, you know, the first time I'd done Maui. And that was the first time I'd seen Bill Walton in probably about six months. And as soon as, you know, I'm, I'm a little, you know, I get there, I'm really tired. Uh, going from Baton Rouge to Dallas to, to Maui landing, going right to all these practices. And the first thing I want to do is they want to shoot something in front of a green screen where we all have uh, Hawaiian shirts on. And I look over and, and our producer is buttoning Bill's shirt. And it's one of those where I did a double take and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm back with Bill. Like, you know, he, his hands <laughs> don't work. He can't button his own. He can't button. He can't tie a tie. He can't button his own shirt. So he's got our producer buttoning his shirt and just, it was kind of like a reality check. I go, I'm, I'm alive. I'm awake. Uh, I don't know maybe where I am or exactly what time it is, but okay. Yeah. Back to reality. That kind of like snapped me back to, okay. Yeah. Some, I have to call a game now. So. In your defense, there are probably a lot of moments in which being next to Bill Walton feels like you're in some sort of weird dream that you can never wake up from. <laughs> 
Well, that's that's uh, probably a good way to put it. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, we did the Pac-12 tournament in person. That was the first game uh, we had done all year in person. All the other games we did were from our home kits. And, you know, it was a unique experience. I think, uh, you know, when you work with somebody as long as we work together, um, you know, it's it's you have a chemistry when you're together and it's a lot different when you're not. So I think it took us a little while to kind of get used to that. Um, but it was, it was nice to finally be together in in Vegas. And I think he was so, uh, uh, all the stuff, all the pent up energy and, and stuff that he was waiting to do all year. He just, he let it fly over three days. It was like a barrage of, uh, Bill at his best for, for three straight days in Vegas. It's always internet gold. Whenever you two are able to be in the same place at the same time, there's always something that's going to happen. I want I want to talk a little bit more, Bill, later on. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong here. You get to call two professional, major professional sports, and like also doing the, the Pac-12 games with Bill Walton. Um, Given what's on your plate, if you decided to take college football off of your plate, you'd still have like three really big things going. So I guess what I'm saying is you must really love college football to still consistently call games like that with probably how crazy your schedule is. Well, I love college football. Um, I, I, there, there are definitely, I would say, most weeks where I, I look forward to that as much as anything, if not more. You know, with the NFL, the NFL is great. You got the best players in the world, but there are 16 games. So if you have an off game, if your team decides not to show up, it doesn't end your season. But in college football, as you very well know, every single game means the world. And so every time you go to do a game, you're doing a game that means everything that could totally change, not just your year, but the year of someone in your conference or somebody in another conference. That's the beauty of college football. And so you only have 12 shots. One is enough with the 14 playoff to totally ruin your season, especially if you're you know, a team that's not Alabama or Ohio State that usually has the best talent. So uh, I love college football. It is unique in that you know we're usually not doing one conference, so we get to see a lot of teams. Sometimes you don't see the same team twice an entire year. You may have different teams every single week. Um, so, you know, when the, and obviously when the fans are there, uh, it, you know, it's such a, it's an event, it's an event unlike any other. Um, you know, I, I just, I wish every sports fan could experience a college football game in person and particularly in the SEC. I know we at ESPN, a lot of people say, well, you guys talk about the SEC way too much. Well, we do because it's the best. You go to an SEC game and you watch the players, first of all, you say, okay, they're the best players. Um, the atmosphere in the SEC is the best. The pageantry, uh, the fan involvement, and just how rabid people are in those cities, it is remarkable. Uh, I mean, you, you, some of these places are in remote locations, and if you were you know, somebody living in Los Angeles and you spend almost your entire time in a city like LA, Chicago, or New York, and all of a sudden you end up in Tuscaloosa and you see how beautiful it is and you see what it's like on a game day, it changed your life. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, there, there's nothing like it. Dave, everybody who's listening to this just all collectively kind of put their hands up, they put their head down, and they're just, 
they're feeling the gospel right now that you're preaching because <laughs> that is music to so many of their ears. I know that. Let's let's talk a bit about the the college game that you were at uh, last week. You called the Texas A&M game with Greg McElroy. What was your biggest takeaway from that besides the fact that well, Jimbo mic'd up is probably the greatest thing in the world. Oh yeah, Jimbo was hilarious. Um, I wasn't sure what we were going to get. You never know. You know, some coaches when they know they're mic'd up, they change a little bit. But I, that was Jimbo. I mean, there was nothing different about like our conversation with him the previous day over Zoom than what you saw. I loved how encouraging he was to his young quarterbacks. I think the the thing that stands out there is they clearly have a lot of talent like last year. And, you know, you had a veteran quarterback, obviously, um, and now you don't. So, you know, I was very curious. I thought going in that I was going to walk away, blown away by Haynes King and, and thinking, okay, this, this is his job. And Zach Calzada is a nice player, but there's just a clear separation. I, I didn't see that at all. In fact, you know, to me, just what I saw, I, I thought Zach Calzada looked better than Haynes King. It doesn't mean that he'll get the starting job. And sometimes spring games, you know, it's unfair. Haynes King's strengths are different. And, you know, a spring game is not conducive to a quarterback who's, you know, best when he's on the run and you're doing a lot of run plays. So I, I, I think it is a little unfair to completely say that, you know, Haynes King still isn't the favorite. But I'm not so sure that those coaches aren't huddling up after saying, boy, uh, you know, Zach threw the ball really well. He had that one pick six late but in the first half. But overall, I was really impressed with him. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought McElroy said a lot of things on the broadcast that were spot on. And I actually was defending him a little bit when I know you kind of pushed back on the Mike Elko as like, you know, number two coordinator, defensive coordinator in college football. And I was kind of like, you know what, actually, I'd be okay with that. There, there are not a lot of guys that I would, that I would take over him. Um, but McElroy said something on the broadcast that I, that I disagreed with, which was that he thought, and this is the point that you just brought up about Calzada and Haynes King, that Calzada had bridged the gap between himself and Haynes King based on that spring game performance. But I disagree with that for a lot of the points that you just brought up where I'm like, all right, yeah, he might've looked better as a passer, but a lot of what Haynes King is going to be able to do is rolling out where he's not in these one-hand touch scenarios. And I just think a guy like him is tough to evaluate in that exact setting. But I also kind of think, why, why would Jimbo want that message out there that Haynes King has clear separation? Of course, he would rather have Zach Calzada be considered this competition type of guy and they're locked in a battle deep in the fall and all that because if he leaves, A&M's quarterback room is all of a sudden really thin. Do you still like? Are you still kind of under the impression that Haynes King is going to be the guy, or was this like, you know, what I could actually see the scenario in which Calzada could win this job? Well, there are some things that Greg pointed out, you know, on the air about how Zach Calzada was throwing the ball in comparison to how Haynes King was throwing the ball. You know, Greg, you know, Greg's a great friend, and I, I think the world of him as an analyst. He, he has, especially when it comes to quarterbacks. I just think he's so smart. He sees things. You know, Greg was the first guy that I remember calling Patrick Mahomes, you know, a future NFL star when he was at Texas Tech. Um, mm -hmm. And then even when he was sitting in Kansas, like he was like, this is the guy. You know, people are crazy not to take this guy 
you know, with the first pick when Mahomes came out. And even when he was in Kansas City waiting behind Alex Smith, um, he was still singing his praises and turned out to be correct. And, I, I, you know, there haven't been too many guys over the years that, that, that I've known, Greg, that, that he's brought up that, you know, haven't played out kind of the way he saw it. You know, he watches warm-ups. He's watching how guys throw. You know, and he, he did point out some things about, the, you know, the, the ball that Zach threw compared to the ball that Haynes was throwing. So I do think that's something to watch. Um, you know, again, I got the sense walking away from the Zoom with Jimbo that maybe Haynes King's the guy they want to win the job because of how multi-talented he is. And you always want – if a guy's a dual threat, I mean, that's the guy you want. But if he's not as good throwing the ball as the other guy, and, and that right now I think is a big question, then it makes your decision all that tougher. So before Jimbo took off his mic, which I think was basically like the whole fourth quarter, what was that like on your end? Was it a two-way thing where he could hear everything you were saying through his ear, like through the earpiece that he had in? You know, I don't know. I mean, he—he, he, I don't know if he had the earpiece in the whole time. He had, you know, we talked to him for maybe two or three minutes for a segment there, but I, I don't know that he, uh, that he had it in the whole time. I would be interested to know because if he had it in the whole time and we were, you know, we were talking about everything he was saying, everything they were doing. So uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, but, uh, he, he's, he, he's fun to listen to, isn't he? Gosh, I, I thought it was tremendous. And I, I was surprised because I came, I came into that thinking if we're getting Jimbo mic'd up, he's going to blast the quarterbacks the whole time. And it's going to be, you can't make this read. You can't make that read. And it was like, he was their hype man. It was crazy because when he's blasting Anaya Smith for the, for the route running and he's saying, can we get a chip? Can we get a chip? Bring a running back over here. We need to get some protection. It's not about being able to slide up in the pocket. It's all these different things. I, I came away surprised that that's how he was in the fall. Maybe some of the dynamic or how he was in the spring and maybe some of the dynamics at play led to that. But I, I mean, would you be in favor of getting Jimbo mic'd up every game? Because I think we need to get to that point. Oh yeah. <laughs> he was great. Yeah. I, I think, you know, and Greg mentioned this too, because he was on Anaya Smith. He was on Kenyon Green. can't remember who else, but he, he, I felt like anybody that was a veteran that was an established player, he was definitely hard on. Um, yeah. and I he probably was hard on Kellen Mond too. But, you know, at this point, it's spring. You know, like when Calzada threw that pick six, said, son, you can't do that. You know, he, he was encouraging to him. Um, I, I, I think he's got the right – look, he, he's got a history of you – know, just his whole career has been developing quarterbacks. And when you're that guy, you spend, you know, that much time. I mean, no other position coach spends that much time with one guy because there's only a few of them. Every other position, you know, you got – you know, Sometimes you got 15 guys you're coaching. Quarterbacks, you got a handful, and some of those guys are walk-ons. So you're really dealing with just a couple, three guys. So he's so good at it. He's got a great way about him. And, you know, you look at uh, his success with Jameis Winston and, you know, even E.J. Manuel, who wasn't a great NFL player, but he's a pretty good college player. And I think Jimbo deserves a lot of credit for that. So, And even Kellen Mond, I mean, his improvement and where Kellen Mond, people are talking about, where he might get drafted now. I mean, you got to give Jimbo some credit. So I think, you know, it's not just the mechanics. It's not just how he teaches the quarterback position, but how he talks to guys, you know, his relationship with those guys obviously is impactful. In your production meetings for College Football Saturdays, and maybe before last year, because I know you were calling games with uh, with Golick instead of McElroy, but 
And those are probably also a bit more complicated with COVID and doing everything over Zoom, just a little bit of a different perspective. But what's maybe the most memorable experience you've had with a player or coach in college football? Boy, it's, I mean, I've been doing this now for almost 20 years. I mean, it's hard to, hard to think about, uh, you know, the, the most memorable experience uh, in terms of a Zoom or, you know, in person. I mean, I think the one that probably stands out, it, it stands out for the wrong reason, but it's just something I'll never forget is doing the, the first game after Joe Paterno got fired and mm. being there with Chris Spielman, Urban Meyer was, was part of our crew and his, his father passed away that week. So he didn't, he didn't do that game with us. So it was me and Chris and Tom Rinaldi was with us that week and several executives were with us and just being in the meeting rooms with Jay Paterno and Tom Bradley and the other assistants, I mean, it was surreal. You're, you're at State College, and Joe Paterno is not there. Um, he, he, not only was he not there, he got fired in the middle of the year because of, obviously, how he handled the Jerry Sandusky situation. Uh, it, was, it was an incredibly sad situation, and you felt awful for the victims. And that's all you're thinking about the whole time is like, man, I can't believe this went on that, uh, you know, this was enabled and allowed. Um, and here you are calling a football game. And now you're meeting with coaches who, who not only knew, I mean, they knew these men and, and were, were in the same room with these men. And you're trying to have this meeting with them and trying to, first of all, believe the things they're telling you, but then also communicate that to the viewers. So um, that wasn't the most fun coaches meeting but it's certainly the one that that i won't for, you know forget for the rest of my career that is an all-time challenge to have to convey that tone after that game because there's nothing that you could experience before that that really prepares you for the sensitivity involved with that and i remember watching those games and how delicate that situation felt like at penn state at the time and just you don't want to come across as the guy who's just overlooking everything and just talking about football. And then there are a lot of people listening to you are probably like, hey, there's a football game going on here. Let's stop talking about this. But it's, I'm sure, is a balance and, and really, really difficult to, to get through. But you know, I'm glad you brought up Urban because I wanted to ask you about him. When you write a book one day about the people that you've worked with in the booth, I'm absolutely going to buy it because... Besides Bill Walton, Mike Golick, Doris Burke, uh, McElroy, both Bob and Brian Greasy, the year that you had with Urban in, in 2011 and then Chris Spielman as well, is there a, a memory or an interaction with Urban that kind of stands out? I, because I feel like a lot of people forget that he was doing that that year in between the Florida and Ohio State gigs. And people remember, obviously, you know, what he was doing these past couple years in studio. But people forget that he was, like, calling games, and he was very active in the college scene. Yeah, I mean, Urban and I are still pretty close. I mean, it, you know, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years. And, you know, obviously all his success at Ohio State and him not taking the challenge of coaching the NFL, I'm really happy for him getting the opportunity. I think he's going to do a great job. In Jacksonville, um, I the, the biggest thing, his first impression on me, and I really didn't know him very well, covered him a little bit at Florida, but, you know, he was so locked in on, you know, coaching. He didn't, you know, really know much, I think, about the broadcasters or what went into a game. So I think his interest level in the intricacies of how to do a game, how to prepare, um, how to call a game, what my role is, 
how he interacts with a producer. I mean, all those things fascinated him. He's a guy that is obsessed with excellence. You you know, you see these clips of him coaching at Ohio State saying, anybody can be average. I can't stand average. I don't know if I'm quoting exactly. I think I'm paraphrasing. But, I mean, he is obsessed with, like, everything he does is about doing it in an excellent way. And so he he was all in. I mean, he would give us – he'd grind the tape. He'd be, you know, writing notes, sending us stuff, sending us – I mean, it just – it was fascinating to be around a guy like him. I mean, he sat us down. He was showing his offense on the grease board. I mean, I, I just couldn't get enough. I mean, you know, we talked a, a lot more than just football and still do. But, I mean, that that to me, just his his level of interest in our business and how to be good at it. I mean, you saw him at Fox. I mean, I thought he was really good in studio at Fox. Yeah. And, you know, look, he, he, when, he, when he left Florida, you know, I think at the time he thought that was it. And then, you know, he obviously it wasn't. And, 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 and towards the end of the year, you know, he was looking at, at Ohio State. And obviously it came through uh, at the end of the season. He, he didn't, we, we did Michigan-Ohio State the last game of the year, and, and Urban didn't call that game. Um, you know, for a lot of reasons, but, uh, you know, obviously with, with all the news surrounding him, you know, he felt that it was going to be a distraction to be calling a game that, you know, a, a game he could be coaching the team a week later. Um, and, and, you know, he just, um, he, I think when he, you know, a lot of guys get into the business and, and they're just doing it to pass the time until they get back in to coaching. He wasn't like that. I mean, it was, I think when he went to Fox, it was the same thing. It was all about how can I be the best at this? Yeah, if I go back to coach, I'll go back to coach at some point. But that's like he's not thinking every day about, okay, well, I got this other thing I got to do until the coaching comes along. No, I mean, he's all in as a teammate. He's all in as uh, just somebody who who wants the best for everybody. I was definitely going to ask you that too because – that's hard from your perspective if that is the case because if he's got one foot out the door or if he's the guy who doesn't want to be critical of this team or that team because he doesn't want to burn a bridge because he wants to get back into coaching you're kind of left there like hey man we need to be able to to kind of call it as we see it not worry about what feelings we're hurting or you know this or that and you know as you say he was all in and i think we really saw that with fox and regardless of what you think about Urban is a a human being, what you can't deny is the guy knows football in a way that just so few people do. And you get reminders of that actually when he does the on-air stuff. Do you think that that's what his path will be if and when his time in football is done with the Jags? Is he just going to go right back into the booth and pretty much pick up where he left off? You know, I don't know. That's a good question. You know, I don't know if he's got like a timetable of how long he wants to coach for. Um... Uh, you know, you'd have to ask him. I, I have no idea. But, you know, I think because, you know, he, he did so well in the studio, and obviously it'd be an easy transition for him. But, you know, I, at that point, you know, he may just want to enjoy time with his grandkids. Who knows? Yeah. And I think he's in, you know, what is mid to late 50s now. Um, and I got to imagine, you know, he's going to be at Jacksonville for at least a handful of years to try to get that thing on the right track and try to win a championship, which obviously in the NFL – you can do in a short amount of time. So, you know, I, I don't know where his head's at in terms of, you know, what the next step is. I think he's probably just pretty worried about the draft at this point. True, true. So tell me how in the world ESPN approaches you and says, 
Dave, we'd love to make you and Bill Walton the broadcasting team for our, our premier Pac-12 game. Um, I, I don't assume that anything with Bill is normal. So how did that initial conversation happen back when that became a full-time thing? Because I know you guys had called games before, but when they decided to make it a full-time thing in 2013, how did all of that come about? Well, you know, to your point, we, we had done some games before uh, NBA, although if you ask Bill, he says he doesn't remember that. Uh, but it was, <laughs> it's true. Uh, there is historical evidence to prove that, that we did do uh, a handful of NBA games together in, in 2006, I think, through t 2008. It might have been as many as, you know, 10 or 12 games together. Um, and so, you know, there was a history there, uh, the two of us having worked together. I think that was part of it. And then, you know, when you get the Pac-12 package, I, at that time, I was doing Big East. Um, there was a lot of travel. And, you know, Bill Walton is going to be the analyst. So I think, you know, it just made sense on a lot of levels to, to put us together. But, you know, when you do that, you, you don't know how it's going to go. I mean, you know, you, you make a decision. In a year, you might make a different decision. But, you know, we're, we just finished year nine. Hopefully, there'll be, you know, nine more at least to come. But uh, it was, you know, there wasn't really much to the conversation. It was just like, hey, we're going to, you know, you guys have worked together before. You're both on the West Coast. Um, we're we're going to put you guys together. And, Go have fun. Did you know what you signed up for? A little bit. I mean, again, having worked to them, there was one instance where we were doing a game in Chicago. It was back, they used to have an NBA game in between the, the national semifinals and the national championship. So Bill was working. He still does do some Westwood one for the final four. So he was going back and forth. I think the final four was in Atlanta. He was going back and forth. This, uh, you know, did was there on Saturday, flew to Chicago. He did the NBA game on Sunday and then flew back for the Monday game. It was an afternoon game in Chicago. Cleveland was playing. LeBron is back when LeBron wore the, the headband. And he took it off and he threw it towards the scores table. And Bill, you know, started yelling that that's a technical foul. And he just kept going on. I just kind of let him go. And I got a call from Tarico the next week because Mike was primarily working with Bill then. And he said, you have to stop him. Like, that's your job, just to jump in there and don't let him go on for a minute. Like, you know, at that point, I was just happy to be there. I was happy to be calling NBA games and happy to be sitting next to Hall of Famer. And, you know, I grew up watching him call games on NBC. So uh, I was just kind of glad just to be sitting there. Um, but Mike gave me some great advice. So I kind of remembered that, had, had that in the back of my head, like, okay, just stop it. And like when we started working together, I would just jump in and stop him and he would stop. I was like, Oh, okay. This, this works. Like, <laughs> you know, he's not going to just keep talking. You can, you can actually stop and redirect. And so it, uh, I, I kind of filed that away from that conversation with Mike that, that definitely helped. Um, but you know, who I, I'd be lying if I said, I knew exactly, you know, it was going to end up the way it ended up with, you know, me being sometimes a, a physical literal punching bag and, and also a verbal punching bag for him. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's been, it's been interesting to say the least. The gifts are what I always love. I, I can't get enough of that when he pulls those out <laughs> and I, the, I, I don't remember what it was. It was like a random tree and he's like, you can eat it. You can do whatever you want to it, but he hands it over to you. Like, you're just going to put this in your, like in your, like whatever your computer bag and be able to like walk away with this thing. And it was just absurd and I can't I, I got to imagine so many moments like that 
where you're just struggling to come up with the right words when someone asks you, what's it like to work with Bill Walton? Because there's no one sentence that really makes sense and there's no relationship that it's like because you're not babysitting, but you are. Like It feels like trying to nail jelly to a tree. I haven't come up with the right words for it. Have you by this point? No, I have not. It's, uh, it, it, there, there is really no way to describe it. To your point, well, first of all, it's, there's no rehearsing or discussion. It's not like we sit around saying, okay, here, here's what I'm going to do. Or here, you say this, and then I'll do this. There's none of that. Like, I have no idea what's coming. There was one a couple of years ago. There was a player for Arizona named Stone Gettings. And to oh, your gosh. point on the gifts, we're doing a game in Tucson. And all of a sudden, he goes, hey, I got a gift for you. And he hands me this huge rock. He goes, hey, ever been stoned? And he hands me this huge stone, you know? And so what am I supposed to, first of all, it's getting all over my suit. It's all over my board. Like, where am I going to go with this thing? And it weighed like 20 pounds and he got it into the arena. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's just, you never know what's coming or when it's coming or why it's coming. And so it's, uh, it's not like you actually have time to react. You just, whatever happens, happens. Okay, the, the candle on the cupcake, was it a trick candle? Because if it wasn't and it was real, that means what all of us have long suspected. That is, Bill Walton is just a figment of our imaginations when all of us on the East Coast are like slap happy, we're up in the wee hours in the morning watching Pac-12 hoops and we're not really sure what's going on. Because if that candle is real, there's just no way that can happen, right? Like, Explain how all of that happened. Well, it was real because it was our producer's birthday. So someone, you know, we were surprising our producer. And so I, I can't remember. I think the director had, you know, somebody, you know, the runner or something, grab a couple cupcakes and just bring it to us. So we wish him happy birthday. So, it, you know, no one knew what Bill was going to do. I mean, I, I actually said to him, I, you know, I dare you to eat that while it's lit. But I meant the cupcake. Yep. And he just took a bite out of the whole thing. So I don't know if he, you know, when he, because he did it later. We had Bobby Hurley on because it was at ASU. We had Bobby on and the post came and Bill did it again for Bobby, who just is enamored with Bill. Can't get enough of him. So Bill did it for him and he he did it again. So I I don't know if he like has a way where he breathes on it. So he blows it out before, you know, he engulfs it or if he just literally eats the thing while it's on fire. I, I don't know, but it's, it was definitely a real candle. I watched it repeatedly um, before before this, and I, I try to come up with that exact explanation, like the Zapruder film, and I, I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. That man put a, a lit candle into his <laughs> mouth and did it. Um, I, I want to end with uh, five rapid-fire questions, and I'll get you out of here. Um, it can be the first thing that comes to mind, or if you've got a 10-minute answer, whatever works. Does that sound good? Sure. Perfect. All right. First one, obvious one. I'm sure you've had to answer this many a time. Best college town that you've been to? Best college town that I've been to. Wow. Well, it's probably an unfair question to me because I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. I knew you'd say that. So, yeah, it's probably the best one. I mean, you know, places I've been there, things I did there, uh, the, the games I attended there growing up, the games I called there. I, yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it's Madison, and it's probably not close. 
I used to make an annual trip to Madison, and I always say to anybody who loves the college experience, Madison is so cool. You get like a, a mile like downtown where it just feels like you're walking through tailgates and the bar scene there. It's very unique, but just an awesome, awesome place. And go in like October when you're not, you know, beginning of October when you're not like totally freezing there. But that's a that's a fair yeah. answer. Um, best college football game you've called for ESPN. Wow. Best college football game, man. You're making. I think I've done it now 18 years. So I gotta, I gotta think. Uh, I, I, don't I figured know. last year had to be one. Florida A&M. Florida A&M last year was was had to be kind of up there at least, given what that could potentially mean for A&M as like a turning point. But I imagine there's probably yeah, maybe that was, like a couple others. Florida A&M. Uh, that was a really good one. Uh, two years ago, Ohio State. Maryland that went to overtime. I think Ohio State was number one. Haskins yeah, was awesome there. Game. Ohio State won at the, at the end in overtime. Um, you know, a couple of the Michigan-Ohio State games just being a part of uh, that rivalry. Um, when Michigan beat Ohio State for the first time in like 10 years uh, with Denard Robinson and Braxton Miller was a true freshman. Um, mm. there, there was a great Cotton Bowl we did, Michigan State-Baylor. Uh, maybe five or six years ago. I mean, there've been a lot of them. I, that's why I said I'm, I'm kind of forgetting. Um, I remember doing a game, uh, Wisconsin was like number five. It was the year Illinois with Juice Williams got, you know, really good. I think went to the Rose Bowl that year. Uh, oh, seven, yeah. and, and Illinois beat him. Illinois beat him in Champaign. And it was early in the year. You didn't know how good Illinois was yet. That one seems to stand out. I mean, there's probably a ton. There may be one that was phenomenal that I'm leaving out, but uh, yeah. So off the top of my head, those are those are the ones that come to mind. When you get Bill Walton a gift, what what have you given him in the past? You know, I gave him a hat uh, when the Cardinals won the NFC West, or maybe it's when they, yeah, I think the NFC West in 2015. I gave him a hat on air for that. Um, I think he wondered what it was. <laughs> what team it was and what sport it was. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I've I've given him. Well, I had a um, somebody got me like a, a Bill Walton, uh, one of those like rubber mini Bill Walton dolls. So I kind of was using it as a voodoo doll. Um, <laughs> and I gave him bending in and breaking off his legs, and then gave it to Bill with the legs broken. Uh, I think I, I don't think I can remember any other ones. What's the longest you've gone silent on a play-by-play call with Walton? Oh boy, uh, there's been times he he's gone on for a couple minutes. Usually, I'll jump in and stop him, but there there are times where I think I just let him go. Uh, I don't know. It's probably probably a couple minutes. You know, if he gets into something very deep and the times where he's gotten to some things that are serious and you, then you don't want to interrupt and really want to let him finish. But, uh, yeah, there's definitely been some lengthy rants. I'm sure that was followed with a text from your Syracuse guy, Tariko being like, Hey man, look, you need to be able to, to calm him <laughs> down again. You let him go on for too long. Um, last one here. What's the one event at the top of your announcing wish list that you have yet to call? When you event, you mean like sport, or do you mean like championship event? 
could be anything. It could be championship events, or if it's just an individual sport that you have yet to call, though, I mean, I feel like you've kind of hit on pretty much everything, but yeah, whatever you want. I don't know. I think, I think all of us get into the business. You want to do the biggest game. So, you know, I've done a Super Bowl for the Cardinals radio. Um, you know, I did a one final four for NCAA international. I did, you know, NBA conference finals for ESPN radio. Um, I mean, I think all of us get in to do a championship event at, you know, one, you know, one of those sports. Um, so I think, you know, it'd be hard for me. I think if one day my career is over and I look back and say, man, I, you know, I never did the biggest game in one of those sports. So I would say that that's still, you know, a, a major goal of mine. You know, you, you, you get into the business to at some point hopefully uh, get a chance to be a lead. But, you know, there's so many great announcers out there. There's so much competition, um, you know, that uh, you don't know if you'll ever get that opportunity. You know, someone's got to usually leave those jobs and that doesn't sure. happen very often because, you know, there's so many guys out there that are so good. And there are a lot of guys that haven't done, you know, a lot of the, the level of stuff that I've done that are, you know, that are excellent. So a lot of it is timing and opportunity. And um, so, yeah, that, I would say that, you know, to answer your question, you know, a championship event is something that uh, I think all of us strive for. Dave, this has been great, great stuff. Really appreciate the time. We're going we're gonna to have to do this again during the season. My pleasure. Anytime. Excellent. Take care. Have a good rest of your day. Okay. You too, man. All right. Take care. This past weekend, Will, I turned 31. Well, I guess, all right, I turned 31 on Monday. Um, based on those context clues, based on my hints from last week's pod, wherein I think I actually just said what we were going to do. Uh, we're talking birthdays today and figuring it out. Um, specifically, like, how do you celebrate birthdays as an adult? What do you look forward to? Um, is there a best day to have your birthday fall on? Because I, I, I was asked this question, too, actually on Arkansas Radio. That kind of goes to show you what time of year it is. It's May in the college football calendar. They're talking about my... <laughs> Just randomly talk. We, we spent like three minutes talking birthdays. Um, my my birthday coming on a Monday this this year. One would probably think a little bit of the Garfield philosophy that kind of sucks, but I actually thought that it worked out really well because I got like a whole weekend to celebrate. I ate a ton of food. We went to the beach on Sunday. I got to watch some Rocky Four on Sunday night to get rid of the Sunday scaries, and then on Monday. Lauren makes me crab stuffed salmon, which was even better than it sounded. Um, I consumed probably, I don't know, like give or take five pounds of seafood celebrating my birthday. And you know, you only turn 31 once. So um, I, I already told the story of my 30th birthday that ever was, um, which I think in basketball, it's like the equivalent of the absurd dunk that goes back rim. And just, you're like, oh my gosh, that was such a great almost dunk. Football comp would be, the highlight reel catch, but the receiver has a foot out of bounds or something like that, or I guess if it's college, it's two feet out of bounds. COVID ruined a trip back to Chicago for a Cubs game with my buddies for my 30th last year. Uh, ruined a chance for me to be able to spend some time with my mom, my brother. But that would have been fun because it was rare for me. I never blow it out on my birthday because all I ever wanna do is relax with my wife. I wanna eat what I wanna eat. I love being able to catch up with people too. When I was in my earlier mid-20s, I love like the whole, you know, people writing on my Facebook wall thing, the attention, you know, it's nice. 
like, hey, thank you for congratulating me on surviving another year, another year on earth. But I, this past year, no small feat to be able to do that. So, um, but what I like about birthdays now is getting calls or texts from people that I don't really interact with as often. Kind of gives me an excuse to be able to catch up with some people because under normal circumstances, I am really, really bad at that. But it, it's changed a lot since I turned 21. Will, what did you do for your 21st birthday? Well, hold on. First off, I just realized I never wished you a happy birthday. So happy birthday, Connor. Oh, no, we talked about it all last week. I You're good. You're say, good. I don't think I did the, the wall post this year. But uh, yeah, man, for 21, I went, um, I went bar hopping in Birmingham with some of my boys from my hometown. Uh, that was pretty cool because growing up around the city, it was like, you know, you would always kind of look at that as like Oz and it's like, oh, those are those bars. We can't get in there. Um, and then I, <laughs> I left for college, so I never really did the whole like sneak into bars thing in Birmingham. You know what I'm saying? So hmm. it was super cool. We got to like, got the whole squad together, got to play some games and uh, Birmingham's a little bit underrated. I'll say it. I think Birmingham is a, is a totally fine city, a totally fine city. I've gotten in a little bit of trouble in the last uh, last month or so for saying something maybe I shouldn't have said about Birmingham, but whatever, that's a different subject <laughs> for a different time. What you say about Birmingham? That's a long story we're not getting into on air. That's a long story, my friend. We took to the Facebook group um, to ask you about celebrating birthdays as an adult, because it's definitely different than when you're a kid and when you're surrounded by your parents and maybe, you know, like when I was growing up, my mom would make make my chocolate cake that I always requested every single year. We got Lumel Nadi's deep dish pizza. And then I just open, you know, she'd get me like 12 presents or something like that. It's gotten to the point now where it's like, hey, I live in Florida. My mom's getting me an Amazon gift card. I know when that's coming, it's money in the bank. I'm totally good with that. But birthdays just, it changes once you either move away or once you're, you know, you turn 21. It's just different in what, what kind of world is open up to be able to do. So let's start with this from Drew Page. Um, Drew says, big, cel big birthday celebrations after 21 are kind of useless, honestly. The biggest thing you get after 21 is you can rent a car at 25. But what about the milestone birthdays? Because 30, 40, dare I say 50, I have some good memories of my dad having a great old time turning 50. And I always remember thinking to myself, if I make it to 50, you know what? I'm gonna have a good old time just like that. But when you're when you're 21 and you celebrate you celebrate and and you have this moment of clarity afterwards where you're like well I'm probably never really going to feel as good about going out to the bars and doing that as I did in that moment at least that's how it felt and that that kind of sounds like a downer take to have but when you when you hit that 21 and maybe it lasts for like 2 months and then you realize like oh for a bit birthdays are kind of going to be downhill after that I, I tried to, as much as possible on my after 21 birthdays, just say, I wanna do whatever I wanna do and how I'm feeling in those specific moments. If that's like hanging out during the day and being able to you know, work for part of the day and then watch the movies, whatever, do, do whatever you know, the situation calls for. Will, I spent my, what would that have been? I spent my 27th birthday with you doing the IMG stuff. Do you remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, that's, uh, you got stuck with me. That's definitely a downhill from the 21. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just now remembering that. Yeah, because we went down to IMG, and if you haven't, 
ever uh, listen to the podcast that we did on the IMG powerhouse that was being built, go def get, definitely download that now. You'd have to go pretty deep in the archives to find that. But sometimes, you know, in this business, like, you know, one time I was driving back from South Dakota on my birthday because, you know, can't predict when the games are. I was covering USHL hockey in South Dakota back when I was working in Nebraska and driving back on my birthday. But I wanted to make sure I do at least like one thing on my birthday that night because it was my, it would have been my 25th birthday. So I didn't have to rent a car for Drew. Didn't do that that day. I got to drive my own car. But you got to do at least one thing in those like non-significant, non-monumental birthdays, whether that's going out to your favorite place for dinner, doing one activity, maybe it's playing 18 holes at your favorite course, buying a six pack of your favorite beer, being able to relax, you know, watch what you want to watch on TV, whatever, whatever it is, you, you got to do at least something. So I, I don't necessarily agree that it's useless, but in terms of like blowing it out, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit harder to justify. Have you had a blow it out birthday post 21? So my best birthday post 21 was definitely 2019. Brittany surprised me and we, so she, there's this place you can go in Georgia where you can drive a tank. Um, so like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. So it's like one of these like 1980s Afghanistan tanks. And we like, I had no idea what was going on. I like, you know me, I was like mad that I was missing like LSU Vandy or whatever. I was like, oh, where are we going? This is and I was like, oh, like we get there, bro. And I was like, we're doing what? I'm sorry, bro. We had, it was so crazy. Cause we started off and we shot a 50 cal machine gun. <laughs> and then we got to hit a car with a tank. So that was 2019. My 2019 was like off the charts good. Goodness gracious. And it's fun to do random things like that before where maybe maybe you've never done something before, but you're like, hey, this is a good excuse to kind of mix things up a little bit and you know, just, just try something new. I never had crab stuffed salmon in my life before and figured, hey, this is a good reason to, to try it. So very, very similar to being able to drive a tank. Goodness gracious, Will. Um, this one, I'm, I'm, I wanna save this one from Andrew Diaz for last. Um, Michael Dark has a good response here. I just turned 31 as well, and the last two quarantine birthdays were some of my favorite. Low key with my wife and kids, along with the beginning of March Madness was awesome. I'd like to uh, thank, I think you went, I'd like to thank my parents for conceiving me after the Pistons 1989 championship. <laughs> That's um, when you kind of do some of the mental math of when, like when you were born and the timing and, and if you could like go back and change things. Like I would have loved to have been born four years earlier just so that my first, like, I don't know, I guess that would have been ages four through 12 would have been all Bulls championship type birthdays because my birthday being in May, that's like kind of in the midst of their playoff run. We used to have like, you know, Father's Day parties at our house and that would have been like such a fun memory as well. But yeah, sorry, Michael, we can't, we can't control that. Birthday sure. timing is always fun because like, so I'm September 20th and for the first, like for a good chunk of my life, that was LSU Mississippi State. And as you may know, for whatever reason, Dan Mullen just could not beat LSU. And so every year I would just go to that game, watch LSU, beat Mississippi State, and usually a pretty fun fashion. And it was like a tradition for like a good like five, six, seven years of just like, I know this is gonna be a W. I'm gonna be there with my buddies, it's gonna be a great time. So like, yeah, having that like early college football birthday, very nice. 2014, the lone exception. Yes. Hopefully you weren't, you weren't trying to <laughs> I actually did go to that one. <laughs>
That's the birth of Dak in a lot of ways. That's a fun game to look back on. Yeah, it was, was a moment in history for sure. Definitely. The timing of birthdays, I used to think my brother's birthday, September 8th, uh, put that in your calendars, send him a nice little happy birthday for when that comes. I know all of you will do that, I'm sure. But I used to think that having that birthday early in the fall was kind of a bummer because everybody's like, ah, we're back to school. Nobody's really in a good mood. And I used to think that my birthday, first week of May, was much better because it was kind of like, hey, we're, we're really close to the summer. In Illinois, you go to school until the first week of June. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. But... I used to think that that was so great. And then as I got older, especially when I got into college, and I've said this before on the podcast, but having a birthday that always set up right before finals, it was the worst, the absolute worst. I know Pat McAfee talked about this as well, because I think we either have the same birthday or it's one day apart or something like that, not to brag or anything. But Pat McAfee said that his his buddies, the week of finals would always you know show out and it was always such a great time and they really got after it. Mine were the exact opposite. Mine were like, we're not gonna, no, we, 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 can't, we can't afford to, to like celebrate your birthday right now, especially when my birthday came on, I think Sunday, the week before, I think my, tw- yeah, my 21st birthday was the, sun, was the Sunday before finals week, which is the absolute worst possible timing for it. I like one of my buddies who, you know, I lived in a house with, uh, with four of my fraternity brothers, and like one of my buddies was like, hey, We'll, you know, we'll get whatever alcohol you want. We'll have a good time. We'll enjoy it. And then I ended up going out to the bars like later that week, you know, when stuff's done. But that day, it's kind of a bummer when you're like, man, nobody's, nobody's really able to, to celebrate this. But timing of birthdays, very, very important. Speaking of timing of birthdays, Emery Picker, he says, it is very difficult to celebrate when your birthday falls dead between Christmas and New Year's. Recently, we have just visited out-of-town friends, Orlando, Charlotte, Asheville, hung out and watched the New Year's Six game that UGA happens to be in that year. Uh, timing on birthdays can be rough when it falls between close, expensive holidays. You're absolutely right about that. I almost feel like if you have one of those birthdays, where if your birthday falls in between Christmas and New Year's, you should just get to pick a day. Pick a day throughout the year. Come up with a new day. And everybody can know, you know, maybe that's when they send you the text on your real birthday. But just say, you know what? June 4th. This is my day. I'm going to make sure that nothing is getting in the way of this. We're going to blow it out. It doesn't really matter if I'm not X amount of years old on the dot. You should get to pick a day because that's a bummer. Or if you are like Sabin and your birthday is on Halloween, you know, I think you should be able to pick a new day because you kind of get overshadowed by it. And I always feel bad for those people. That's a bummer. Pick a new day, Emery. Pick a new day. Christopher Zahor is the pronunciation of this. <laughs> Spelled C-Z-A-C-H-O-R. I think I nailed that. I think I nailed that, Christopher. He says, beer, but only with close friends. And if you don't want to make a big deal out of it, don't let mom get involved. No, no, let's, you know, if you want to, if your mom's getting involved into your birthday celebrations, mom's not going to hold back. Mom's going to go to whatever length she wants to go to to make sure that you're having a good time. And they think of stuff that you wouldn't have thought of. So I'm not necessarily... I'm not necessarily a believer that you need to leave mom out of the birthday celebration. If mom's going to go out and, you know, 
buy beer or you know buy decorations, whatever. I, that's not the worst thing in the world. It's not the worst thing in the world. I don't have that problem or that that issue, that dilemma. I don't think it's, it wouldn't be a problem for me because I celebrate with my family all the time. But living far from home now, obviously, it's a little bit different than that. But you know, if you want to get mom involved, I wouldn't worry about that. Do what you got to do, man. Will is your mom? Your mom would definitely be a great person to have involved in a birthday celebration. My mom's the best birthday person ever um, because I had a birthday that was during school. She used to do something so absurd every year, bro. We had like a Hummer limo one year. We had like what? people in Pokemon costumes. My mom was a G when it came to my, like, my young birthdays. And then like adult birthdays are super funny because I think I've told you this, but it's like my mom is one of the only people in the world that I know can drink me under the table. I don't know what it is, maybe just being from the bayou, but drinking with her and like celebrating with her is always very fun because I it's it's very funny to just be my size and my age and just be like, wow, your mom is lapping you right now. This is and she I've never <laughs> seen my mom anything close to drunk. She's just like doing goodwill and just drinking like a full scotch. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, I am darn impressed. Yeah, so get mom involved, and if your mom can drink you under the table, then oh well, that's that's just part of the party. Best one for last year, Andrew Diaz says, my best adult birthday is today. We're celebrating the birth of our little boy, Elijah, who was born at 2.28 a.m. this morning. Posted a picture in the Facebook group of his new son, Elijah, presumably named after Elijah Moore. I don't know, maybe, but great name nonetheless. That just gives you the feels right there. Oh man, great picture too. Go join the Facebook group if you haven't. You wanna see a picture of Andrew's baby. Hopefully you and your significant other, you guys are doing well. Baby Elijah. Elijah's gonna be joining the Facebook group soon. Elijah's gonna be probably consuming all things SEC football real soon, I would imagine that. Don't have a picture of the specific team on the hat, on the hat in the baby photo. We got some time for that. We got some time for that. Thank you for everyone who has submitted um, responses for figuring it out. Birthday week, always big here. Um, I know Marler's got a birthday, May 5th. By the time people are listening to this, it will already have been Marler's birthday. But if you have not yet, go subscribe to Marler and Tyler Huck's podcast, College Football Uncensored, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a five-star review if you have not done so yet. Or again, get a burner account, do what you got to do. Leave us a five-star review with that too. Go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Make sure you do that. Get all of your headlines. I know it's a slow time of year in college football, May and June, but we still have so much stuff. Transfer Portal is lit. It is all over the place. Again, join the Facebook group. Hear your name, Red on Air, in figuring it out. Enjoy a slower time of year, but probably going to be a really news-heavy time of year in college football. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.